Well, good morning. We are starting a couple new practices as a church that you may be aware of, you may not be aware of. Um, and some of your groups may say that's not particularly a new practice for us. But the first is uh, related to an email that you got in the middle of the week and uh, then that we, we tried to text out to you. You can expect, hopefully you won't be disappointed in that expectation, but you can expect that by around Wednesday at noon, that email will go out every week. Purpose of that email, what we're going to call the TC Midweek, is to provide you an advanced look at the passage that we're going to be studying. So uh, every Wednesday here in January, uh, before one of these next few messages, so this Wednesday, you can expect to get another similar document that'll help you to look at Psalm chapter 12, which is another one of these imprecatory psalms, psalms of both lament, frustration, and sadness that we're bringing to God uh, that Brad will be preaching next Sunday. The reason for that is, one, to be able to equip your soul individually, but two, it's to be able to shape what you do in your community groups. We were talking for a while about what we wanted our groups to be here in 2024. And this may be a temporary, this may be a long-term solution. But for a while, what we want to do in our small groups is to look at the passage in advance. Um, some of your groups may choose, in, in some cases, hey, we'd really want to talk about the, the sermon that we just heard as well. But we're always going to put that resource out for you. So look for that around Wednesday at noon, and hopefully that'll provide for those of you that meet on Thursdays, on Fridays, and then even with Brad's group meeting on Sunday afterwards, you guys will just have to figure out what you're doing, I guess. So uh, the second thing that we're doing, and I'm grateful to the Pennock, uh, I guess, officially transitioned from the Schiffnick, Schifano Pennock group to just the Pennock group, um, as Keith has officially kind of stepped back from leading a group. Um, actually, one other thing I guess we can notice in all of this is that we have a couple new deacons um, and we have a, uh, an ex-elder. We have an elder, what, what would you call that retired elder? That, what's that? Emeritus. Very good. I, Brad would like you to, to address him as Elder Emeritus from now on. Elder Emeritus Brad is the official title he has in the church. Uh, Brad has uh, officially stepped back from being an elder and has taken up the role of uh, being a treasurer and financial deacon. So there's a new team that's, uh, that's kind of leading their way there. Um, but with that, uh, today, our, our time of, of reading scripture and praying for the service was really staffed by the Pennock group. And you're going to be uh, kind of hearing from Ashley or from your community group leaders um, over the, the next weeks. Uh, kind of a similar request. So I think the Chen group is going to take this next one. So we'll be hearing from Ashley or, or Mike, uh, maybe Sophia, or whoever does the administrative work within that group. Hey, we need some folks to be reading and praying. And so week by week, community group by community group, that's the way we're going to try to man and staff some of what we're doing here as a church. Um, one, this will make it a little easier on Ashley. So you're welcome, Ashley, for the fact that everyone is so glad to help you this way. It is, it is nice to be in a church like that where everyone is willing to help <laughs> Ashley. <laughs> there we are. There we are. It's amazing what you can say with your eyes. Um, so, no, we, we really do want these reminders for us. Given the, the nature of how we are as a church, 
uh, it's just nice to be able to do things that, that get all of us kind of up together and remind us um, this is us, right? We're not coming to watch something. We're, we're part of this. We're co-owners. We're members together of this congregation. So that said, Brad pointed out an interesting little discrepancy. Not a discrepancy, an interesting reality. If you look in your, in your handouts, and you see, if you're at home, and you see the, the attachment in the email, see we're in the Psalms we love to sing um, study, right? Directly underneath the logo, Psalms we love to sing, O Lord God of vengeance. And you might be saying to yourself, these are not the Psalms I love to sing. <laughs> in fact, if we're honest with ourselves, these are not the Psalms anyone loves to sing. And I can tell you that because when I went for a search of, hey, Phil, what if we did a song from Psalm 94? They were not congregationally palatable songs. They were intriguing to listen to. A lot of bongos, you know, people who like vengeance apparently like bongos because it seemed like that was a theme through a few of them. They were tough to sing. And uh, the only honest album that I really found was by this lady, and she had just titled her, uh, her album, The Other Psalms. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't come up with a new logo that said that, like the other psalms that some people might like to sing. Um, but here's the truth of it. Though we don't have songs that really... Are, are driven out of uh, imprecatory psalms too much. That will be in Psalm 12, just advance for you, uh, Psalm 12, Psalm 143, and then we're going to finish our time in Psalm 22, which is a little bit more uh, popular, given the way that Jesus used it on the cross. Um, and so there's a few more songs that have come out of 22, but, but though these aren't normally psalms we love to sing, what I hope happens by the time we're done is that these do become psalms that we love to sing to God, if nothing else, because it's only fake Christians that only feel joy and hope and bliss. We struggle with anxiety. We struggle with sadness and wounds and guilt over really being the target of some of these psalms, because it's not just that evil comes into the world through others. The reality is that if God was going to obliterate the world of wickedness, we would as we've said before, we would all be gone. And so we are both victims of sin and agents of sin. And so the imprecatory Psalms both help us to speak against the injustice done, but it also reminds us of the way that God views injustice we've participated in, wrongs we've done. And, and there is a weightlessness that Christianity brings both in, psalm, in ways that we've been wronged and in ways that we've wronged others because we see the work that Jesus has done. We, we, uh, we are aware, um, or at least I'm aware. I hope that Brad is aware. Uh, he's going to feel like I'm preaching his psalm today, kind of, because the themes are really similar across these. Hey, Lord, there are wicked people. I'm really angry. I'm really sad. I'm kind of anxious. What are you going to do about it? I will hope and I will wait for you. Those themes are going to run kind of similarly through. I would encourage you, though, not to just skip the rest of them. Uh, but much like sit-ups, much like push-ups, much like running and walking, it's through the repetition of the activity that our soul becomes acclimated to this as a normal part of life. And we need to get in shape a little bit for what happens when we're wronged, 
what happens when we're sad, what happens when we're hurting and having to wait in the midst of those clouds of injustice. What do we do? These Psalms teach us. And so I hope we come away a little bit more informed by the end of this month, if not by the end of this uh, hour. Hour, sorry, it's a long psalm. So here's what I think we're going to learn. I think we're going to learn three things in particular and then we'll learn to direct those to the Lord. So uh, the first thing that I think we're going to learn is to cry out over injustice. Jesus said that those who mourn are the ones who are comforted. Not those who suffer that are comforted. There is something in every one of these Psalms that we will see that suffering needs to be expressed to God in order to kind of make it count, have some voice of faith. You can't just sit and suffer and ask why God's not doing anything. Across the board, it is those that cry out to God who are actually the ones that God answers. Now, this, this may rub you the wrong way right out of the gate. And I know you're saying like, Dan, you haven't even preached a word of it yet. And I, I'm like, yes, but I want you to hear the words, not skim past them. And the first thing I want you to notice about the words is that they are words. They are actually there. These were written by a psalmist to a congregation, to people. And he was saying, I'm going to set this thing to music. And I want you to say these things to God. I want you to sing these things to God. These aren't just me giving you the reflections of my soul. These are my words when I'm wronged. And these should be your words when you're wronged. In other words, hey, church, complain. Or if you don't like that, use this language. Cry out over injustice. Listen to the way that he cries out. Oh Lord, God of vengeance. Oh God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, oh judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? He does not have a stammer. All right, we don't know who wrote this. But he is not writing because he stutters, okay? He repeats something twice within three verses. He says, oh God of vengeance, oh God of vengeance. That's deliberate. Same strategy in verse three. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked? That is an intentional literary tool in order to be able to say, very, or really, or highlight, or bold font, or underline, whatever it is you do to get attention to stuff. When you're taking notes, when you're kind of asking a question of something, that's what he's doing in this psalm. God, you are a God who actually repays the wicked. God, you are a God of vengeance. God of vengeance. I'm wondering how long the wicked, those wicked, how long will they exult? And this is not the only spot in scripture. This probably should kind of remind you of other echoes that you've heard of this same kind of language, right? Psalm 74, maybe not a familiar one to you, but this is just one sample of many Psalms that ask this exact question. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Habakkuk. 
talking about his own people, cries out to God and says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? But isn't that just poetic? It's not just prophetic. At the very end of the story, or even in the midst of a story of a suffering church at the end of the Bible, the churches to whom John is writing in Revelation hear not saints on the earth, but martyred saints in the presence of God complaining to God. Can you complain in a sinful way? Absolutely. Can you mess up any emotion with whatever else is going on in your heart? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that complaint is always sinful. Why? Because in the presence of God sit the martyred saints who are saying, and John is seeing, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. They cried out, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Are you feeling more than permission to say things to God? Are you feeling almost even a mandate to speak to God? So there's maybe a little bit of Britishness still in our psyche. We probably don't want to admit that. But if we had to kind of draw parallel lines between us and other countries, I mean, the English would probably be one of those that we would see a lot of similarities in, right? And what, are, what are they known for? The, the, the stiff upper lipness of things, right? We kind of admire those heroes in movies and stories that endure things and just take it and everything's just okay. I played volleyball when I was growing up with a lot of different people, different personalities, and some would be just super caustic and grabbing the net and you're, ah, the other guys. I just really enjoyed playing with one guy who like, when he'd get up and he would just kill it. I'm back there going, yeah. He'd turn around and be like, I'm like, dude, that was the best hit everybody has seen the whole night. And there are like 16 nets out here. You just killed that. And all you did was like, hmm. But I'm, I'm kind of drawn to that sort of person. There was something about it I just really liked. I like being able to be the exuberant one out there on the court and just have them be like, kaboom. Hmm. I'll go serve now. There's something, I think, though, wrongly, whenever we say that that's more of a godly approach to God when we suffer. Stiff upper lifted. Maybe if nothing else, you can just, you know, be wronged and go, hmm, rats. That is not, this is not language of rats. This is not like a silent little, you know, clench in your fist. This is angry, slobbering, mad kind of just what in the world is going on? And you ask, what in the world is going on? Okay, guess what? It's right here. Verse 4. Oh, by the way, something else we're going to try and do a little bit more. Um, sorry about the aside. Verse 4 is there. It's not going anywhere. Just a sec. We do realize one issue that we've kind of been doing as a church. And uh, I'm kind of speaking ahead of a decision that we've made as elders, but we've been talking about it. So I'm going to at least let you know what we're talking about. One of the weird things that we do is we put, uh, we put these in front of you. We put the, the lyrics and the, the scriptures up on the slides. Um, but we make it really, really possible for you not to bring your Bible with you to church. And I don't know that's a good thing. Because you don't take these slides with you. 
Uh, I do want you always to see when we're preaching, like it's the word. Hopefully you see it's from the word. If we're saying something that's not there, you should be able to go like, yo, what is up with what you're talking about? Because I don't see it, right? You should be able to see it. But mm -hmm, it feels like we should be able to see it when we go. Right? So I know many of you using a phone or a digital device or something along those lines. I just encourage you how we're going to be trying to talk this way. Uh, look in your lap. You know, not just look here, but look in your lap or write this down or make a note or underline this. We do want to just kind of remember that as a group of disciples, we take God's word with us, not just treasured up in our hearts, but literally physically with us. One of the great privileges we have of believers um, we've got so many good translations and it's good for us to use that tool, all right, in, in physical ways. So we, we do want to be reminding you and speaking that way to you. Hopefully we won't forget to be doing this and to remind us, Brad, next week's going to be talking to you as you see Psalm 12 in your laps somehow or in your hand. Just maybe highlight this on your screen or, you know, make an underline of it. But if you want to look here or there, here's verse 4. They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, afflict your heritage, kill the widow and the sojourner, murder the fatherless. Wouldn't this make you mad? I mean, I get mad by a lot less. They didn't notice what I've done. They said things about me that were only 85% true. They used my name in a weird tone of voice. I don't like the way my reputation has been tarnished. I'm so angry. I, mean, I don't want to minimize. Those are our, our struggles, right? I don't have a lot of people who are actually crushing and afflicting and killing. Now, the next time that I get an opportunity to do a Zoom conference with pastors in Nepal, when Barb is heading over today and another pastor I know is heading over to visit Tirtha, this will be a message that makes a lot more physical sense to them. Because in Nepal, this is a danger to be a believer. It's not just that your stuff will be taken away from you, though it will. It's that your life could be ended. And that is actually happening. In this day, there are enemies around them, crushing, afflicting, killing, and murdering, and then boasting about it. And what links it to a spiritual battle even beyond that is that they're then making statements about God because of their military victory. That's the, that's the chief difficulty of the day is to interpret the strength of your God by the power of your army and your success on the battlefield. Many times, Joshua, we do see God proving himself. In Exodus, we see God proving himself by his military might over false gods. But there are times that God uses the armies of false gods in order to rescue his people and bring them back. And in the midst of that, too often, as these people are getting beaten up, what they're hearing are these boasts saying, you with your puny God and your puny army. You who are dead on the battlefield. You with widows and orphans in your midst that you know how to care of care for because we just killed the men in your country who would have provided, who would have defended. They're pouring out arrogant words. All the evildoers are boasting and their main boast comes in verse seven. They say, God is blind and dumb. God of Jacob does not perceive. The Lord does not see. 
the Christian church has made enemies because we have been faulty people. In the United States, the church has made a ton of mistakes, and we've got to own up to them. But to say that 100% of the hostility in our society against Christians is because of Christian mistakes is to ignore this theme in the Bible outright. So please, don't buy into it. It is the narrative you were here. Christians are so faulty, so hypocritical, so whatever, that they've earned all the animosity. Animosity against God's people has been the constant definition at times of what it means to be the people of God. People of God will suffer because they're allied with God. And people who hate God, hate God's people. That is true whether or not Christians are sinful, which we are. Hypocritical, which we are. Faulty, which we are. So this point is a point on its own. And when we hear hostility against the God of the Bible, the God of the church, and against the people of God, we can take up our place along with this psalmist and the congregations he's saying to sing. And we can say, guys, it's our turn to sing too. There has always been antagonism against God in the American culture, but it is growing. And we are far more mocked in popular ways. It is actually more popular to mock a Christian than to identify with them right now. And that's, that's the spot you take up whenever you take up arms with the Lord. And so this has to be the first thing that we learn. We have to learn how to cry out over living in a world that is murdering, killing, afflicting, and boasting, and lying about God. Because that's the greatest ill that God's kingdom is suffering, is that the king is being slandered. That he is blind, indifferent, or stupid. But then the second thing that we learn from this psalm isn't just to be able to cry out to God. It's to be able to actually cry out against the culture. We not only cry out and bring our needs to God, but we then call out against this unbelief that is accusing God of all of this. And rather than God being dumb and God being blind, the psalmist turns to people and says, Hey, dullest of the people. Hey, fools. When will you be wise? Josiah, I think when, when, when they were studying it as a community group, had a different translation that said, oh, stupid people, something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. The ESV maybe wanted to take a little bit of the edge off. But, you know, if we were reading the, the message, maybe it'd be something like, yo, morons. Listen up. Or to use the language of Proverbs. Hey, fools who say in your heart there is no God. Please understand how dull that makes you. How stupid that makes you. You want to accuse him of being blind and stupid? Oh my goodness, no. The blindness and stupidity are yours. He planted the ear, formed the eye, and disciplines the nations. Verses 9 and 10. He teaches man knowledge and knows their thoughts. And if you have an ear and you have an eye and you're breathing and you have thoughts and you've learned anything and you think that somehow all of that came absent the existence and the intervention and the creation of God, you could not be more stupid 
Your capacity to listen, to understand, to see, to perceive, to exist in this world is all because it has been given to you by God. And do you know what that makes you? Temporary. At the end, verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. It does feel at times like every generation declares the death of God, right? There have been the popular declarations. There have been the books that are going out. There's the new atheism that describes, oh, God is just absolutely not only dead, but the concept of him is bad. Okay, we're taking our blows that way. Just remember with the Psalm 2 that we looked at last week. He's sitting in the heavens. And he's just chuckling. Really? I'm dead. Come back to me in 150 years and make that accusation again, if you don't mind. Because all of your thoughts, all of your capacity to hear, everything I've given to you, your capacity to see, I'm the one who hears, I'm the one who sees, I'm the one who rebukes, I'm the one who teaches, because I'm the one who endures. What's true about everybody else? You're a breath. That language, we've heard that language before. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, all is vanity, and a striving after wind. The meaninglessness, the vapors of life. Why is it that people exist that way? It's because people can't do a single thing that's permanent. Even what we think is most popular will stop being popular. What we think is most established will be crumbling down before us. And so we can have this sense when we're living in this world, kind of like Isaiah who said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for vanity. Have you you ever felt that way? Have you ever parented that way or been employed that way or been in ministry in some fashion that way and felt like, man, everything that I feel like I'm doing just feels like this repetitive cycle of stuff that just doesn't land anywhere, doesn't make an impact. It's like I'm just pouring out my resources into a pit and I just watch it all go, just blown away into the wind. And I go, what was this all for? That's where Isaiah was at. And you notice the chapter? That's where he's at in chapter 49. He's been doing a lot of work by this point. He's been preaching a lot to a lot of people who are not listening to him. And he's been, for the first 39 chapters, giving some some pretty tough news. Chapter 40 arrives and he's like, okay, words of comfort to you. Kind of messianic hope. Let's, Let's listen. He's not the 53 yet. But somewhere in the middle of it, Isaiah is just bumming. He is struggling. I... I feel like I've been doing this for nothing. And what I would think, and it's a bummer, we we put it up there so you're already reading, right? So I I can't like, oh, what would he say next? Well, we just read it, so. But I'll say this, if I had to answer Isaiah in the middle of it, I might counsel Isaiah a little bit the way that I might counsel somebody else or counsel somebody who's struggling in the middle of the vanities and the repetitions of life and say, the Lord's pleased by what we do in small moments. Jesus spoke to that when he said, it feels like you, you give 
or you pray, or you serve in ways that nobody notices, remember, God sees. He's, he's not blind. He gets what you're doing when nobody else sees what you're doing or says, well, I had a boy because of what you're doing. That might be the way that I would counsel, but that's not the way that Isaiah gets counseled. God doesn't come and say, oh, it's okay, Isaiah, because I'm just going to speak to you in a small, still voice right now. He, he does that. But here, listen to what he says. I, in fact, I even read this wrong the first time. Uh, the way I read this was the Lord said, isn't it enough for you to be merely my servant? And I would be a little dyslexic in my mind. Like, yeah, Isaiah, it should just be enough for you to be the servant of God. But that's not what he says. He actually says, it isn't enough for you to be merely my servant. In other words, I'm not just going to rescue you and your people. I'm not just going to give you a voice among your nation that is going to be disciplined and then rebuked and then exiled and then brought back. I'm not just going to give you words that are going to only exist within your little sphere. You're going to speak to them, but here's what's going to happen. As you speak to them, it's going to explode out with global impact. It isn't enough for you to be merely my servant. I have placed you here as a light for other nations you must take my saving power to everyone on earth. What a, what a statement to make. I pulled that second part of the verse from the, the CEV, a different translation, because frankly, I was looking through to see, did anybody translate this the way that I read it in the first part? Like, is anybody reading this like a question? Like, Isaiah, what's up with you, man? Isn't it enough to be my servant? The kind of thing we would like, kind of tell each other in the middle of things, Right? Be faithful in little stuff. It's da, 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 da. Every single translation comes across exactly this way. From the most wooden and literal to something more like the CEV, which just takes a little bit more of a concept in the middle of it. And he's basically saying this. Isaiah, you have been faithful, suffering through what you've been doing. And I hear the struggle that you're in right now where you're kind of like, man, this has been totally wasted. Get this. I'm doing big global stuff through your wasted life. And I read that, and I'm like, oh. Because the main operator here, the main pronoun, is I have placed you here as a light for other nations. You must take my saving power to everyone on earth. And that's, that, that's just got to be kind of frustrating for a moment. Because Isaiah never sees that happen. Our kids back when we were praying before the service today, Megan was talking about the fact that they're in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. All about a life of faith lived out by those many who are faithful in a moment, probably struggling like Isaiah in a particular moment and are asking the question, is this just wasted in this moment? And yet their story endures in a chapter that our children are studying thousands of years later. Guys, in the vanities of life, in the moments of life, we live in a culture that is basically saying, we want something permanent. And the lie is, you got to make yourself permanent. You've got to find a way so that your legacy endures. Your statue will always stand. And people will always be able to think about you in glowing terms. And your story will be told long after you're gone. And that's not what God gives to Isaiah. 
hey, dude, I know you're feeling a little low. Let me boost your self-esteem and tell you how important you're going to be for generations to come. People are going to quote you every Christmas, okay? It'll be all right. No. Isaiah, I get it. But you just get to talk about me. And when you do that, big, global, universal, eternal things happen. You know who you can't tell that to? Anybody in the world who doesn't know Jesus. The weird thing about the world and the weird thing about what the psalmist does here from verses 8 through 11 is he listens to people that have been accusing God. That guy's blind. That guy's dumb. That guy doesn't know what's going on. And he turns and he goes, oh my goodness, no guys, all the blindness is yours. All the dullness, all the stupidity is yours. Because God made you and he only gave you capacities that endure with him forever. Your capacity to do anything, it's going to fade away. And the only way we do anything that lasts is we attach ourselves to the one who's permanent. Even Isaiah, struggling after the things that feel in vain, spending his strength for vanity, hears, but if you're attached to me, I'm going to make it. And so you matter. Back to the psalm. We're to cry out to God. We're to call out unbelief in the world around us. And then lastly, we're to connect ourselves to God's word. Listen to where I get that point from verses 12 to 15. I'm going to read that all in one chunk. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will turn to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Now, listen to the logic of what he's saying in those four verses. Around him are problems, right? End of verse 13. Uh, there are wicked people. Middle of, or beginning of verse 13. There are days of trouble. And there is, verse 14, the possibility of feeling like God has forsaken us in the middle of those days of trouble and in the presence of wicked people around us, right? That's, we've kind of already got that, but these verses kind of sum that up and still acknowledge it. But what is the promise given to God's people in the middle of it? The promise has to do with the blessing that comes to those who are, verse 12, taught out of God's law. Because why? Verse 14, God won't forsake and God won't abandon and justice will return. We'll get to verse 15 at the end. But the point I want to make to you in the middle of this is that there are things that God has spoken to be true, promises God has made that are in, in the psalm here represented by the words, your law, what I'm saying broadly for us today are, are connected to God's word in total. It is not just in the days of the psalmist that there are wicked people in days of trouble. Those have endured all the way to our day. But what is also endured all the way to our day are the promises that God has made, who has never once lied, who has never once abandoned, who has never once forsaken his whole point, his whole heritage, his people, or his word. So what does that mean for us? It doesn't mean that God blesses us when he removes the wicked and he removes the days of trouble. That's not the blessing given to God's people. 
The blessing is that God disciplines and teaches by connecting us to his word. So in the midst of a world accusing a God of being blind, but is, are blind themselves, oppressing God's people and lying about God, in the midst of that world that is very difficult to live in, what do you do? I think we follow his promise or his command here, which is to expect a blessing from God when we are connecting ourselves to God's word. Listen to the way that Samuel talks about this in chapter 12 of his book. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. You see the connection that Samuel makes between those two things? All around you is a world that is empty, that is breathy, that is vaporous, that is just really not going to fill up or satisfy or endure. All around you is all of this stuff. And the prophet is calling out to the people, don't build your lives on that emptiness, on that meaninglessness, on that vanity. Why? Because God won't forsake his people. But what about when his people are more like the world than they are like him? What about when his people become faithless? What about when his people falter like you all have, like I have? What does God do with us then? He doesn't forsake us, not for our sake, not for the name of Trinity Church, not for you and your legacy, but because of his great namesake. Why? Because it just makes him happy to be faithful to keep working in you. How cool is that? Because the opposite of that would be so totally uncool. If what pleases God is to find faithful people who never fail him, then we're just going to take up our place in the whole legacy of everybody who's ever failed God, gets flooded out, and he just needs to start over. But what God has said is actually, it doesn't make me happy to, be, to find faithful people it makes me happy to be faithful to people and to keep winning them back and to keep winning them away from this empty world and to remind them, I'm the only one you could know who could ever satisfy. I'm, I'm the only one who's ever made a promise that you could actually bank on because I won't forsake my people. Verse 14 of this Psalm, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Isaiah 42, same chapter we were just looking at, God's words to Isaiah. You know what else God says in that same chapter? The same thing to the whole group of people. It's not just the faithful prophet. He says to all of them, I am the Lord. I've called y'all in righteousness. I'll take y'all by the hand and keep all of you. I'll give y'all of you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. The point he's making to Isaiah, the prophet who feels like he's wasting his life, is the same point he's making to the whole people of God. I'm going to work this through all of you. I find that vastly encouraging because these were really damaged people. These were really broken people. And the same promise applies across the story of how God is working with his people. It's okay. Come back. I won't forsake my promise. It's okay. Come back. I won't forsake my promise. It's okay. Come on back. I won't forsake my promise. 
And so he can look you in the eyes and tell you exactly the same thing. You had a bad week, didn't you? It's okay. Come back. The Lord won't forsake his people. So if we follow the psalmist's example, and we cry out to God, that gives us confidence to be able to call out the lies of the world around us while owning our, our problem and then connecting ourselves, not to our legacy and our faithfulness, but to God's legacy and his faithfulness, then we're going to remember three things about God. I think these three things are kind of the take-home points I want you to kind of get at when we think about what do we really learn about God from the rest of this psalm. The first thing is this. God stands up for his people against our foe which is a really hard point for me to make because I just made the exact opposite point last week. What did I tell you about victory? God ain't on your side. It's a question of whether you're on God's side. Now I'm coming to a psalm. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been on my side, and I'm going, mm. whoever you are, unnamed psalmist, you're kind of ruining my point from last week. Not really. But it is amazing that the God who rightly can ask humanity, are you for me or against me, not am I for you and against you? That that God can still call himself a helper to humanity. That that God can still make a pledge to come along and fight for his people. So that when God's people are actually attacked by God's enemy, we can be sure of God's support and his protection. God stands up for his people against our foes. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. Psalm 124, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel say, and he goes on and repeats it again, just to undo my whole point. God's on my side. God's on my side. Let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side. And then at the very end, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Take away for us. Still our ancient foe seeks to do us well. You cannot walk out of this psalm and say, I am unopposed in this world because I don't have people who actually want to kill me. I'm unopposed in this world because most of the people I know, Christians and non-Christians, actually like me. I will tell you this whether you are aware of it or not. There is a foe of the Lord who is your enemy because he wants to take you down. His craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate. And on earth is not as equal. And yet we read, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the later, in all this, we are more than conquerors. Those are crazy statements when you take them in light of the suffering people of God, most of the time in the Old Testament, opposed by the enemies of God. It's an amazing thing when you realize that this is written to the church in Rome, <laughs> beaten up by the Roman Empire, 
by a guy who had actually suffered at the hands of the Romans. And he says, God fights for us. You can be more than a conqueror through your attachment to him. Because if God's for us, who can be against us? Main thing to remember about God is that he stands up for his people against our common foe. And secondly, that God holds up his people in our doubt. When I thought, verse 18, my foot slips, it was your steadfast love, O Lord, that held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. If I read those verses to you out of context, and I said, what kind of a psalm is that in? You would not have guessed an imprecatory psalm. It is amazing to me that the same psalmist who's talking about the God of vengeance is able to then say, God, in the midst of this, I got to be honest, I doubted you like everybody else. I was allying myself to your enemies and my feet were slipping a bit in the middle of this and I was really struggling. What should God do to his people when they're doubting like that? I mean, you should take out the sword, but you see this? You want a piece of this? Huh? Well, get back on my side. Come on, get around over here, people. No, it's his steadfast love. Your consolations, your comfort cheers me when the cares of my heart are many. When my feet are slippy, your steadfast love is holding me up. Psalm 73, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And guys, this isn't just the God of the Old Testament and a psalmist calling out to the congregation. When when we needed to feel the consolation and the steadfast love of God the most, I mean, you know this, we just got through Christmas. He came to us. He came and visited us and walked among us and was slandered like us and struggled like us and was tempted like us. And he rescued his disciples in the middle of the boat, in the middle of a storm and called them out and just chided their unbelief and then takes the boat to the shore and they're they're just all dumbfounded. And yet that same God meets a man who is struggling himself. And he says, I, 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 I don't know if you could do anything about my problem. <laughs> Jesus, what are you talking about, man? If, I, if I'm able, all things are possible for him who believes. What does what the guy say back to Jesus? This is, is going to be our cry back to the Lord as well. Immediately, the father of the child cried and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is the second thing we need to remember about God is that in his people's doubts, God holds up his people as well. Even when we're close to taking up arms against him because we think he's failed us or we've waited too long or we've struggled for a while. It's that same God who is going to conquer the unrighteous who's going to hold us and comfort the unbelief out of our hearts. 
I find this, these an amazing two verses in the midst of the rest of this. And the last way we see ourselves just centered on God's strength, the last thing we learn about God in his strength is that he shows up for his people in our need. Verse 20 comes back and asks the, the main question as it sums up the psalm. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. And the amazing thing about knowing Jesus as the expression on earth of this God, the main thing about knowing God through his spirit today and his spirit reminding us about Jesus is that we have to at least square up first in this psalm with the fact that we have done far more than we would care to acknowledge that puts us on the side of the unrighteous. We have done far more doubting, far more accusing, far more thinking that in our sin, God doesn't see, God doesn't know that we're pulling a fast one on him. That we can find comfort and refuge and shelter somewhere else other than in him. And we got to square up and ask the question. If God's going to truly deal with the unrighteous, then what do I have to expect from this God? That's why I wanted Brian to read from us from Matthew. Because Pilate takes the only innocent man. And in all his blindness and in all his stupidity of trying to think he can wash away his responsibility, he's at least able to see one thing. Before me is a man I've never met the equal of because he is truly innocent. In fact, if this psalm were only to apply to the category of the innocent on the earth, the righteous on the earth, and the unrighteous on the earth, then it would be Jesus and the rest of us. That's the way this psalm would make the most sense. And yet, because God's people have perpetually been called throughout the story to recognize their sin, to look for a sacrifice for their sin, and then to rejoice in the sacrifice that God has provided, we can read the story and we can remember that this Jesus was standing in for us. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's quarter and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified. Why? So that nobody would ever have to look at you in your life 
life and say, you serious? You've tried to portray yourself this way. Let me strip that off of you. Let me expose you in your nakedness so that you can be mocked by everyone. Would you just hate if that moment happened in your life? Do you know why you don't have to worry about that moment happening in your future? Because it happened to him. And yet here we are as Christians. We celebrate this fact every single week that he bore our shame. He carried our guilt. He was the, he was the slaughtered lamb in our place that we could know the life and the forgiveness of God. We celebrate that all the time. And then we get so worried about these little problems. We get so worried about everything else that when measured up against our eternal condition and our state before God is trivial in comparison. And yet we're so overwhelmed. God, when will you bring righteousness on the earth? And God's like, well, I did. And when he was done, I sent my spirit to you that you would remember I'm pretty good at taking care of sin. How am I doing in your world? Can you trust me with the rest of it? Because God shows up for his people in need. So we can say at the end of this psalm, but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. One of the difficulties in preaching the first of a series of imprecatory psalms is I want to make every point that every psalm makes. Because there's so much to be said right now. There's so many ways that we look at who's wronged us in the past. And we're like, God, does God really care about me? Stay tuned, guys. There's so many ways that we struggle with what's happening in the world around us. And we're asking the question, God, do you see the direction of the world? Do you see what's happening to your people? Do you care about the condition of the church in Nepal? Lord, do you know what's happened to Tirtha? What's happened to the men that, that, that um, finished the mission is dealing with? You, they're, they're getting killed. Their stuff is being stolen from them. And we're telling our kids back in children's ministry, you trust that God. Because he's let that happen to his people for years. And if you're not struggling with that tension right now, I don't think we've really totally entered into the psalm or let the psalm enter into our story. But we got all month to look at this. But what I want to remind you is that he shows up for his people in their need. He holds us up in our doubts. And he will never, ever be mocked by this world. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, so grateful that Jesus the innocent took our place as the unrighteous. Jesus the honored took our place as the shamed. And we're grateful, Lord, that now allied with him, we can take we can take a place as one of these who are declared righteous and are learning to live righteous. And we can say to the world, you are missing it. You're desiring something and you're mocking him, but you're missing it and you're missing him. Lord, I pray that we would gain a better capacity to speak that way and to trust you in the middle of all of our struggles all of our doubts, 
and all of the ways that others have sinned against us. So Lord, I pray this month, shape us through these psalms. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and, and sing this faith.